with me, please, or listen on as I read now the conclusion of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. It is my aim this morning to preach to you the love of the Father, not because some people call this Father's Day, but because that is how Paul concludes Romans chapter 8. Listen to how he does so. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let us pray together. Holy Father, we praise you once more for your word and the riches that it contains. We ask you, as we come now to the close of this mighty section of scripture, perhaps, at least in my view, the great high point of scripture, Romans chapter 8. Father, we ask you that you would open up your word to us with special power and energy and, and the unction of the Holy Spirit, that the preaching might be in the power of the Spirit and that the hearing might equally be by faith in the power of the Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have at last come to the triumphant conclusion of what Paul has been saying, not only in Romans chapter eight, but uh, really, if we consider this extended section as beginning in uh, chapter one, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And on he goes from there. He's been expounding upon the gospel. And here uh, we come to, to the end of this. Uh, extended treatment of the gospel of grace, the gospel that he wasn't ashamed to preach, the gospel that God had revealed to him and had made uh, Saul the persecutor, Paul the preacher. And here uh, he is no longer dealing with the objections as he was in verses 31 through 37. There you remember he took up six questions dealing with four objections, but having dealt with them, every obstacle, every objection to the faith Uh, which he was endearing to us and expressing to us, having demolished them completely, all that is left to do here at the very end is to express as fully as he possibly can the faith, as I say, that he was commending to us and that uh, that he enjoyed himself. His total, his complete confidence in God. Let me read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards, which I, uh, which I read to you recently. He says, the Apostle Paul, through all his epistles, speaks in an assured strain, ever speaking positively of his special relation to Christ, his Lord and Master and Redeemer, and his interest in an expectation of future reward. That little phrase, three words, an assured strain. That's what you find in Paul. And that's especially what you find here at the end in verses 38 and 39. Here I would note The way he ends this major section, chapters five through eight, you remember this larger section, chapters one through eight, we divided in two. There was chapters one through four, justification by faith in chapters five through eight, the believer's enjoyment of it. Well, the way he ends chapters five through eight is the same way he ends chapters one through four. I wonder if you ever noticed that. He says at the end there of Abraham. 
Verse 17, chapter 4. I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. Verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a 100 years old. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he was that, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul is describing the faith of Abraham, which justified him. The faith of Abraham was his sure confidence in the word of God, the word of promise. And here uh, we have uh, the same thing. The only difference here is the personal element. He's not describing the faith of another. Chapter 4, he describes the faith of Abraham. Here he is expressing his own. Paul has become Abraham, so to speak. Abraham was fully convinced he was persuaded. So too was Paul. And you can see where this is going. So too ought you to be. Or else all that we have considered is of no value at all. I am persuaded, Paul says. The sense of the verb persuaded is that I've been convinced by the arguments set forth. All the arguments that we've considered. I'm no longer in doubt. My questions are fully answered. My heart is fully settled on the matter. As with Abraham, I am fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to do. And so Paul, once again, I say, is expressing his complete confidence in God. What is he convinced of? Well, he's convinced of this, that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you look at that, what he says in verse 38, it's clear. Well, no, verse 39, rather. It's clear that Paul is merely summarizing everything that he said before. He's summing up the argument. He's fully convinced that God is for us. Verse 31. And if God is for us, none can be against us. That is, he's fully convinced of God's favor towards him in justification and in election and so on. He's fully convinced that as God did not spare his own son, so he will also with him freely give us all things. Verse 32. He's convinced that it is God who justifies. In the matter of justification, he entertains no doubts, for God has justified me. He is convinced, verse 34, beyond that. Not only is it God who justifies, but it is Christ who died, yes, rather, who was raised who is seated at the right hand of God and whoever intercedes for us. Who then is there to condemn? No one, Paul suggests. Lastly, he is convinced that Christ who has loved us, or or Christ has loved us, and it is Christ who makes us more than conquerors. Verses 35 through 37. And so being fully convinced of these things, he's able to say, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, that's what he was convinced of. But how did he come by this conviction, this persuasion? Or I could put it like this. From when uh, from where does he fetch such assurance? And the answer is simply from God himself. Nowhere uh, in these verses, beginning in verse 31 or even stretching before that, does Paul point to the believer 
as the source of his own assurance or confidence in God, the believer does not fetch this persuasion from himself. It is all of God. Look here at what he says. The eye only comes in once we've settled in our hearts what is true of God. Again, we think of Vaughn's letter to Dabney. He says, think of the master when you want your faith to grow. Or he gives the analogy of the bridge. Now, suppose a traveler comes to a bridge and he's in doubt about trusting himself to it. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his own mind to see if if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence, and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why, in the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Well, with that analogy in mind, how do I come by such knowledge which is able to breed such confidence? In other words, spiritually speaking, how do I inspect This bridge, which is God himself and the testimony of his love. Well, look here, Paul says, the love of God is the thing I'm sure of. And my certainty comes from God himself. In what way? Well, it was God himself who has manifested or or who has revealed it to me. And when I look at the bridge, I'm merely examining what he has made plain to me. He's done so in Scripture. God is ever testifying in scripture of his love. In fact, uh, perhaps it's a little sentimental or cheesy to say, but some have spoken of the Bible as God's love letter to the elect. Because all throughout, God is testifying of the great love with which he's loved us. And that's the thing he would persuade us of. And if you read the Bible and you're not persuaded of that, then you read the Bible wrongly. All along, God is testifying to his love to us. He's manifested to us preeminently at the cross. The great and central fact of history and of scripture. There, what becomes plain to us is the love of God. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where do we see the love of God? We see it at the cross. Again, I would challenge you here in your view of the cross. If you survey and behold what God is doing at the cross and you see not the love of God, then you look at it wrongly. You're learning the wrong things. His love is evident in calling us. I'm talking about our conversions, the new birth, when we become Christians. Here is where his election of us is made sure, when he calls us to himself. For he calls none but those whom he has foreknown and thus predestined, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. His love is manifest, lastly, in our hearts or in our experience God himself makes us aware of his love. He makes us feel it. Earlier on, I was preaching that in Romans chapter 8. It isn't just an idea to be believed. It is a reality to be experienced. It's something Paul says in another place, in the same larger section, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts. You see what I'm saying? God makes us aware of it. He makes us sure of it by our experience of it. In another place, Romans chapter 8, he speaks of our relating to the Father through that same spirit as sons. 
What's he saying? He's saying that as, uh, as sons, we are made to experience this familiar, familial feeling. We are made by the Spirit to relate to the Father as sons, to experience his love for us, and to express our love for him. The love of God is the thing I am sure of, Paul is saying. And it is God himself who has given me this assurance. I might also add as an aside that this is one of the key purposes of preaching. Not, not only of reading your Bibles, but of preaching. It is to persuade you who are so apt to doubt of the love of God for sinners. Oh, it seems strange to say. It is a matter of wonder even to the angels. And the one thing which Satan hates more than anything else, that God should set his love upon sinners. Those who once hated him. And yet how lovely his grace in saving us appears when we consider it all sprang. Every facet of our salvation from his eternal love set upon us in his son. And so the Apostle Paul can say, here's the thing I know. It's the thing I'm persuaded of. God has persuaded me of it. He's given me this conviction. You see, again, that's how we have to look at faith. It's the faith of Abraham, so it's the faith of Paul. And I wonder, is it your faith as well? Faith is not vague ideas about God. It is not beliefs loosely held, which you read in Scripture. This is the very conviction upon which we base our lives and stake eternity. It is, I say again, a conviction which is formed in the heart. And the way this conviction is described here is something that is rock solid, that is assailed from, uh, from every direction and yet which stands forevermore. The faith which the believer has in God, our certainty in God. And it is out of this conviction, going back to the very beginning of the epistle, that the apostle can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I am, I am under obligation to preach it. You see, he's not only interested in his own salvation, but it is this conviction formed in his heart that uh, burst forth, as it were, into his preaching and into his epistles. So that once more, his great end or his great aim in view was to persuade you and me of the love of God for the elect in the Son. We would do well here to see that the love he speaks of is the love of the Father. And now I say again, this is not a Father's Day sermon. But I spoke last time of the love of the son. So here I speak of the love of the father. And that is precisely what Paul does. He spoke of the love of the son in verses 34 through 37. But here he speaks in another way. He's persuaded us, you might say, of the love of the son in those verses. Only now as he closes, he would persuade us of the love of the father. The love of the father, as I'll say in a moment, which is known in the son. John Murray says this, the love of the father has its distinctive features. I wonder if you've ever thought of it that way. If you've ever thought to distinguish the love of the father from the love of the son. Well, I'm suggesting along with Murray that that's precisely what Paul is doing here. Going on with Murray's quote, preeminently, it is the love that gave the son. And the love of Christ is preeminently that he gave himself. And so the love of the father and the love of the son appear in the same way, at the same event. The love of the father and the love of the son are in full agreement. And yet they are to be distinguished as the love of two distinct persons. 
Do you not already see Paul saying that when he says, I'm persuaded of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? You see, he's making a distinction between the love of the Father and the way that love appears in the person of his Son. The Father loves us in giving his Son. The Son loves in giving himself. Herein the love of, the, of God appears, John says. First John 4, 9 and 10. I read that earlier. What's he talking about? He's talking about the love of the Father in giving his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about God the Father. It's the same thing here. Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God, the Father. It's always the same truth that Scripture contemplates. The love of the Father and giving his Son. We read about it earlier in verse 32. He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Father. So, as John Murray also says, there is a coordination of purpose between the Father and the Son. The same love, the same purpose. Note, too, the role of the Holy Spirit with respect to the love of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It is the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. This is how he puts it. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his, his own love toward us in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a coordination of purpose. All three persons work in conjunction to display the same love to us. And to secure what that love seeks, namely fellowship and reconciliation. But there is also, as Murray says, a note of exclusiveness, not just a coordination of purpose, but a note of exclusiveness when Paul tells us that the love of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, he doesn't speak indiscriminately. And I'll return to this in a little bit, uh, the way uh, the universalists do of the love of God. But he speaks as he's been doing all throughout this epistle and especially in Romans chapter eight. He is speaking in the narrow fashion of Jesus Christ himself and all who are in him, all who are found in him and thus comprehended in the purpose of God. The love of Christ is found, Paul says. Not anywhere, but only in one place in Jesus Christ. Indeed. He's saying there's no other way to conceive of the love of God the Father or to experience the love of the Father outside of Christ his Son. The love of the Father for the elect is in the Son, never outside of the Son. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. Let me read those verses. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Only in Christ, as Murray says, are we embraced and held by it. You see, I want to make this distinction. It's not just that Jesus Christ is the one in whom we behold the love of God. No, it's something altogether beyond that. It's that in Jesus Christ alone do we ever come to be. Beloved of God. 
to know the love of God in an experiential way, to be held and embraced by it, as Murray says, to be utterly persuaded by it, to be emboldened by it. How does a man come by this? By faith in Christ alone. This is something practically and pastorally we all need to be persuaded of. I mean the love of God in Christ for us. The love of God the Father. Because there is a version of the gospel that the devil likes to tell. And I wonder if you ever believed it. The version of the gospel goes something like this. The love of Christ is fully admitted, but the love of the Father is denied. The thought is something like Christ loves the saints. He loves the elect. He loves his sheep. He lays down his life for them. He dies for them. He is raised. He goes to the Father. He pleads for them. But in pleading for them, he's seeking to persuade the father. For the father is full of wrath. The father is full of righteous anger and indignation. And Jesus Christ stands there pleading with the father. Oh, father, forgive them. Oh, father, have mercy on them. And if Christ did not stand there persuading, well, then the father would cease to save. You see, This view depicts Christ is full of love and the Father is full of wrath. And I wonder whether even implicitly you've ever been given to that kind of false gospel. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He says, speaking of obstacles to assurance. He speaks of the difficulty some Christians have in believing that they are freely justified by the Father. Who in his love sent his son for them. They, they may have been nurtured in a womb of preaching that has portrayed Christ as the one. Who by his sacrifice persuades a wrathful father to pardon us. In view of what Christ has done. When grace no longer reaches back into the very fountainhead. Then deep and suspicious thoughts of God the father develop. And assurance is not possible. Again the father. The son full of love. The father full of wrath. Ferguson goes on to quote John Owen. Owen says, few can carry up their hearts and minds to this height by faith as to rest their souls in the love of the father. They live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. All here is serene and quiet, but how to attain this pitch they know not. This is the will of God that he may always be eyed as benign, kind, tender, loving and unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly as the father and the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. That this is that which Christ came to reveal. Or let me quote Hugh Martin arguing against uh, the view of the intercession and the atonement that he calls persuasion. He says such influence is inconsistent with the idea of office, authorization and appointment. It is inconceivable that the unwilling father should appoint his son to the office of rendering him unwilling to do that which he is rendering him willing to do that which he is antecedently unwilling to do.
Did the father appoint the son to persuade him to do something he was antecedently unwilling to do? In short, we lack assurance because we entertain wrong thoughts about the father. That's what Ferguson's saying. That's what I'm saying. And that's why I think that Paul ends on this note. The love of the father. We doubt his love. Again, we think of him asking the son to do what he is antecedently unwilling to do. We think of him as full of wrath only for us. And we think of Christ as the tender hearted one ever persuading the father to be otherwise. And this calls into question the whole scheme of salvation. It reaches back, as Ferguson says, into the very fountainhead of eternity from whence our salvation sprung and was conceived and calls into question the very thing it was meant to reveal, namely the love of God, the father. Doubting that the soul asks, am I really loved of God? Or does the father only love me because the son persuades him? Is Christ always pleading with the father not to damn me, not to destroy me? In response to this, I say, along with Paul, along with John, along with Jesus and Owen and others, let us seek to know the father rightly and to understand the gospel which reveals him to us. The gospel is not just a revelation of the son. It is equally a revelation of the father by the son. And let us seek by faith to be lifted up to the very heights of his love and rest our souls there. Here was the serene arena of Paul's faith, which enabled him to speak as he did. And how did he get there? How did he get to the serene heights of the father's love? Few can, oh, and again, few can carry up their hearts and minds to this height by faith as to rest their souls in the love of The father, they live below it in the troublesome regions of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. All here is serene and quiet. But how to attain to this pitch, they know not. Well, Paul knew it. But I would surmise that many of us do not. How might we be lifted to such heights as to live in the love of God, the father? And the answer is surprisingly simple. I hope it occurs to you even as I ask the question. I hope it's an answer that you've learned, only perhaps at times you've forgotten. The answer is only as you behold the Father and the Son. As you behold the Father and the Son, or as you behold the Son, the one thing you should never question is the love of the Father. You see, that's what's so pernicious about this assumption or this suspicion. In seeing the Son, we see the Father. We don't see in the son a father who's unwilling to pardon, who's unwilling to love us until the son persuades him otherwise. Rather, we are driven back to the very fountainhead of eternity and of our salvation. And we recognize that the whole scheme of salvation formed in the father as he commissioned the son to be the savior of the elect. And as Christ stands in heaven for us, even as he died upon the cross, what he was accomplishing was the will of the father. No, as we look on the son, we should see the father. We should see them not at odds, but in harmony. This coordination of purpose that John Murray says. Do you realize how often we're like Philip? When he said, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Well, listen to what Jesus said just before that and just after. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. 
And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip asks his question. And so often I'm suggesting we are asking the same question. We say, Jesus, we know all about you. But what we want to know is about the Father. Have I been with you so long, Jesus says, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me. Or believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. This is what Christ came to reveal to us, Owen says. And I'm saying. He came not only to reveal his own love, but I would say uh, even more than that. He came to reveal the love of the Father. And that's the thing we're meant to see most. And which we do see most when we're honest. When we go back to the scriptures we love more than any. John 3.16, 1 John 4. Or Romans chapter 8. What is at stake? What is being revealed in the Son to us? It's the love of the Father. The love which he had and which was formed in his great heart, if I could speak that way, in eternity past. The love which he set upon the elect in the Son before the foundation of the world. The love which was manifest in sending the Son. The love which was manifest as he was given over for our sins on the cross. The love which was manifested as he was raised and is seated now at the right hand of God interceding for us. In all of these things, what is revealed to us is the love of the Father. But until we are persuaded of this, until we rightly see the love of the Father, when we behold the Son by faith, we will be like those Owen describes who live below this pitch in the troublesome regions of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. This is the will of God, that he may always be eyed as benign, kind, tender, loving, unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly as the father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. You see. We think of Christ, the son as meek, kind, tender, mercy, uh, merciful, full of pity, full of forgiveness But we are meant to view the Father in the same way, even as we behold the Father in the Son. But as we behold the love of the Father in the Son, the thought becomes, as Paul expresses here, what could separate us from that love? And the answer is nothing. Nothing could ever separate us, that is, the elect from the love of God, the Father in the Son. And that is the way to be persuaded of it, to see that nothing can separate us from it. I said I would come back to this point. Let me do so now. The love of God is not for everyone. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. He isn't saying every man has a right to be persuaded of this or assured of this. Paul doesn't suddenly here become a universalist. No, he's speaking distinctly. He's speaking narrowly. He is speaking of God's love for the Christian. And the Christian is someone who is in Christ. And about him, or rather about God's love for him, Paul is absolutely Persuaded of them, he says, which is, I mean, of us. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ for the simple reason that God's love for us in his son is far greater than any of these things. He lists. Look at the list. You remember there was a list in uh, verses. Thirty five and thirty six. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Well, here he gives a different list. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life and so on. Let's look at the list together. The things which can't separate us from the love of God in Christ. First, death. Death will not separate the believer from the love of God in Christ. Is it possible, beloved, at times that we are apt to think it is so? That we are filled with thoughts of dread with respect to our own deaths or the deaths of those whom we love, though, who are in Christ because of this sneaking suspicion? That death, as the most, as the most dreaded and feared possibility, might succeed in separating us from the love of God. No, death will not. Hear the Apostle Paul. Hear me when I say, death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ. For the simple reason that Christ has conquered death for us. He has tasted it, so he has conquered it in the resurrection. And he makes us to share in his victory, both now and in the resurrection. So that the prospect of death for the Christian, I mean the Christian on the deathbed, the thing which many of you perhaps fear more than anything else, the prospect of death is not terrible. The sting, the dread, the terror has been taken out of death by Christ himself so that the Christian does not live in dread of death. Is that true of you? Or are you still afraid of dying? I could put it as boldly as this. In one sense, the believer looks forward to it. He relishes the thought of the deathbed. He sees it as a kind of sanctuary, the place at which faith is at its highest and God's love is most known. Have you ever read of the death of some of the most eminent saints? This is what you'll read of, not just their life, but of their death. Do you remember what Hebrews says of those who not only lived but died in faith? Yes, there's something eminently sweet about the deathbed of a believer. For there he is made to know and to experience the love of God. And that in itself makes it something to relish and to look forward to. But even above that, he realizes that Death for him is something that becomes the very gate of entry into the presence of God, the God whom he loved, the God who loved him. Not death nor life, Paul says. Life so full of troubles, so full of dangers, so full of perplexities, all of the sufferings of the present time that Paul has spoken of in Romans chapter 8. No, life itself cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nor angels, principalities, or powers. It's an interesting form of speech. He seems to be speaking of angels, good and bad. Do you remember what Paul said? There are those, by the way, who say, how could he be speaking of good angels? Well, uh, good angels on the one hand, obviously bad angels on the other hand. We understand that bad angels might in some sense stand in the way, but good Well, do you remember what Paul says when he says, even if an angel should preach to me another gospel, let him be accursed. Yes, he conceives or at least he entertains the possibility, though he knows it isn't true, that perhaps even an angel might seek to stand in the way. But it doesn't matter. Not even an angel, a good angel could stand in the way or separate me. Certainly not the bad, the demons, the principalities, the powers, Satan himself, all that which aligns itself against the believer nor things present, Paul says, nor things to come, things present, things future, nor height, nor depth. Go up into heaven, he says, and see if you can get above Christ. You can't. All is beneath his reign. He is supreme. 
He is seated at the right hand of God. Or go in the opposite direction. Go down as deep as you like and realize that as he descended into the depths of the grave, so he conquered all that is beneath us. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And in all these things, he has revealed to us and persuaded us of the love of God in himself, nor any other created thing. So as to exclude nothing, you see, you can make the list as long as you like. You can add to it uh, up, uh, uh, up to uh, an unlimited number. And you won't win the argument. Paul ends this grand conclusion as he began. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so if he has loved us in the Son, and he has, so he will always love us, which persuades us that nothing, no nothing, can ever separate us from his love. My question to you as I close is twofold. It is first, are you persuaded of it? And do you know how to be persuaded of it? I understand that we are apt to doubt. Our hearts are full of fears and dread especially at times when we sin or when trials press in upon us, are you persuaded of the love of God? And do you know how to come by this knowledge and this persuasion? Look upon the sun. Examine the bridge. That will breed confidence in your heart. But as a second question, as I close, what does it lead to? This persuasion. Well, I'll tell you using the confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, speaking of those who obtain a true assurance, it says they will enjoy peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, love and thankfulness to God and strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. You see, Paul doesn't just or the the confession doesn't say and certainly Paul isn't saying Well, if you enjoy assurance, all will be serene and peaceful and quiet, and you can sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the days that you live in this world until you come into your inheritance. That isn't what he's saying, and I hope to preach that uh, in a a greater way this evening. No, he isn't saying that you become useless. He's saying you become eminently useful. Those who are sure will be the best, the most fruitful, the most useful believers. Whereas the opposite is also true. Those who are full of doubts and fears will never do anything for God. And any man who claims to have assurance but not holiness is not a man you should listen to. Sure of God's love, our only interest becomes how to live lives which are now pleasing to him. And soon in chapters 12 through 16, especially 12 through 15, Paul will tell us all about that. He'll tell us about the life which is lived in the service of of God, the man who's been justified and he knows it, who's persuaded of the love of God. How's he meant to live? You see, if you're persuaded of his love, that's what you want to know. You want to hear all about it and he'll tell us all about it. But first, there's one problem we have to face. What about the Jews? Paul's been telling us all about the purpose of God, how the purpose of God can never fail. It can never be thwarted in anything. Well, Paul, what about the Jews? I have much to say about that. I'll say that next week. But the question is simply, has God's purpose failed with respect to them, seeing that they have been rejected, seeing that they have fallen into unbelief? Well, before we get to hear all about the life that's pleasing to God, we have to hear about this first. We have to consider salvation in its broader worldwide historical scope, chapters 9 through 11. 
Having concluded this mighty section of scripture then, chapters 1 through 8, let us turn our attention now to that in the coming weeks and months. Amen. And let us come now to the table.